pretty much where I left off yesterday with, uh, with a singular exception, and that is in Leviticus 26. We were, we're headed to Leviticus 28 here in a few minutes, but I want to take a little time at the beginning of this service to review something that God has told us. Uh, and when I said 26, it's actually in 27. No, I'm... I guess I wanted Deuteronomy, that's what I wanted. I'm like George, and singing a different song than they're playing. <laughs> yeah, Deuteronomy 26. You will recall that... Uh, about the end of the feast last year, or whatever it was that we were discussing, the beginning of the third tithe year, uh, we said some things here I did about the blessing that God asked, that we asked, after we've completed the third tithe year, and there was a certain amount of confusion over that. Some felt the third tithe is not part of God's Word, that there's only one mentioned in Scripture. And that kind of conclusion is often reached when we maybe look at one scripture instead of all the things that God has to say about a particular subject. You have to get his whole mind on something. Uh, so those things and those misunderstandings can sometimes occur. But I think it is quite easy to prove that there are uh, three tithes mentioned in the Bible. I'm not going to go into all that. I have before. But it says to give all the tithe, the one that's speaking of God's tithe, to the priest. It says to give, take all your second tithe every year, year by year, to the feast. So, in both cases, it says all. And then here, in Deuteronomy 26, it talks about the tithe of your increase the third year. So the others are year by year, clearly in the context in which they're written, and this is uh, something that is done every third year. We understand that is to some degree a generality because it's the third and the sixth of the seven-year cycle in the Jubilee uh, configuration of the 50 years of Jubilee. But as we best reckoned it, this past year has been the third tide year. Actually, it should go from atonement to atonement because it's all tied to the Jubilee. And the Jubilee was announced on the Day of Atonement. Um, and as I pointed out, I, I think about the Jubilee on atonement, something that was new in my thinking or never occurred to me in terms of the symbolism, is how the seven-year uh, year of release and the third tithe years are tied to the Jubilee and therefore why third tithe is so important uh, in terms of spiritual understanding. Because of all of those who come through, uh, the end-of-the-age holocaust will be very poor and starving and needy and without clothing, without shelter. They will have every need that a human being could need uh, without love, without anything that a human being desires for uh, comfort and security. There will be the rest of all that, and we as the bride of Christ will be called upon 
to provide a third tithe function, to have in store what we have built up in terms of understanding and then in terms of physical blessing too as the earth has changed and be able to provide for all those people. So uh, I never really understood why God tied the Jubilee year to atonement instead of, let's say, the feast. But now I understand. And the whole uh, seven-year cycle times seven and the third tithe cycle along with it is tied to Jubilee, the time when people are freed from the horrors that we experience on this earth and will have peace, plenty, and security. So that's what it pictures in the festival cycle. <clears throat> now, we said at the beginning last fall that it would be nice to come to the end of the third tithe year, which we have done, and to be able to read Deuteronomy 26 and verse 12. Perhaps we should have done it on atonement, but I felt it more appropriate in some respects to wait. And I even had misgivings about whether to do it at all, since we had some who had disagreed and had not kept it. Uh, how do you ask for a blessing when you know that we have a divided camp? So uh, at this point, I think those who are here with us today probably see and pretty much agree with uh, the scriptures as read, and I want to go over this and see what God says about it here at the beginning of this service in verse 12 of Deuteronomy 26. When you have made an end of tithing all the tithes of your increase the third year, which is the year of tithing, uh, special tithes at, at that time, the others clearly show year by year and have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that they meet within your gates and be filled. When you've done this, then you shall say before the eternal your God, I have brought away the hallowed things out of my house. There is a cost involved in taking care of the poor, the widow, the orphan, and so on. Uh, the things that we prize and desire to use for ourselves, we set aside for others the, every third and sixth year out of a seven-year cycle. So they are precious to us, and they mean something to us, and we have to give them to someone else. And that's what love is all about, is taking care of other people. So this is a sacrifice, is it not? And that's what he's saying there. And I've given them to those whom God allocates them to, according to all your commandments which you have commanded me, I have not transgressed your commandments, neither have I forgotten them. I have not eaten thereof in my mourning, in other words, if I myself might have been poor or had some need or didn't have as much as I wanted, I didn't dip into it and take it because of my own needs or sorrows, neither have I taken away anything thereof for an unholy or unclean, unclean or unspecified, uh, you might say. God specifies what it is for. And it says, I haven't used it for any other thing, just that which is made clean by God for its use. 
nor given anything thereof for the dead. There were those. There was something in the religion back then. It's not completely clear <coughs> where they made sacrifices for the dead, but they didn't donate it uh, to such a stupid thing. Anyway, but I have hearkened to the voice of the Eternal, my God, and have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the land which you have given us as you swore unto our fathers, a land that flows with milk and honey. I think that's a very loaded verse, a very powerful verse. Uh, physical Israel has not done as God instructed all Israel to do here in Leviticus 26. So the only ones who are in line to accomplish this and then to ask God's blessing are spiritual Israel, the church. We're the only ones that pay any attention to this command, and some in the church do not. So uh, those who are willing to do what God says, are then in line to ask for a blessing upon them, having done it. And I think the context mentions here about how we're in the land that God has given us, a land flowing with milk and honey, is very much the topic that is on the table here at the feast and will be for some time afterwards, going through all the different facts and phenomenons that have to do with this land. So... Very, very few understand even what land they're in, much less the third tithe uh, cycle. And even of those who do understand it in the wider church of God, don't understand the promised land and where we are uh, and what we're, let's say, at least proving to be the case. Whether it's fully proved or not, uh, I guess we'll see, but at least that is our thinking essentially at the moment. And he doesn't really, and we don't ask for a personal blessing here. Uh, a lot of people read it that way over the years. But it's as a body, bless your people, Israel, or your church, or those in your church who are complying with this. So I think it's time to do it. And I would ask us that we all, let's rise and bow our heads before God. We don't have a fifth song, so we can get up one more time. Our great God in heaven, who created the heavens and the earth, and have looked out the best areas on this earth and give them, given them to your people Israel, we come in a way ashamed that having been given this great and wonderful land, we have polluted it, we have ruined it, we have been a part of the process. But Father, through your mercy and your kindness and your love, you have called some out from this land. You've given us your truth and your understanding of these scriptures. And you're even helping us to understand far beyond what we ever did. Just who we are and where we are and why we are here. And what an important part it plays in your plan of salvation for mankind and that the 
whole world be blessed from this land where you will set up your headquarters and will rule the universe throughout eternity. So, Father, that is the context in which you told us to ask a blessing. And we have kept your third tithe law as you commanded us to do. And we come before you now, having finished that cycle on the Day of Atonement, and ask you to bless your people Israel, spiritual Israel in particular. It would be amiss to even ask that this nation be blessed at this point. You said not to even pray for it, because they will not repent, and nothing will happen that is good until after the horror hits. So, Father, we ask you to bless us here on this holy ground and your promised land. We do not deserve your blessing, and it is, has been slow in coming because of our inattention to you. So, Father, we have completed this one instruction, and we're working on many, many more, and our hearts and our minds and our desire to serve you and to please you. And though we fail mightily at times, we do ask for your forgiveness, for your mercy, and that you will confer blessing on us for this obedience that we have wrought before you. So bless us as you see fit. We thank you for your love and your concern and your offering of this blessing. We give you thanks for it in the name of your Son and our soon-coming King and Husband, Emmanuel of Christ. Now, I had one other uh, scripture that I wanted to go to in this section that we were covering yesterday. And that's the Deuteronomy 28. I think I did some reference maybe to Leviticus 26, which is a sister scripture to this one. But there's a few points in here that I uh, would like to hit again a little bit before going on. Deuteronomy 28, it says, And it shall come to pass, if you shall hearken diligently unto the voice of the Eternal your God, to observe and do all his commandments which I command you this day, that the eternal your God will set you on high above all nations of the earth. I think it is important to understand, we'll get into it a little bit later on in today's sermon uh, in Genesis, but to determine where Israel is and what peoples they are, we have to look at the facts based on today. And God tells us in this chapter on blessings and cursings that if Israel will obey his laws, and he gave us a fresh start in 1607 uh, by bringing us back to this land, he would set us on high above all nations of the earth. Now, which nation has been set above all nations of the earth? 
Now, Britain was a, an empire up until about 1922, when it covered, the British Empire covered about 25% of the land area of the earth under direct rulership. And then the British influence began to decline and finally went away to whether they're almost a third-rate nation now. But America began the ascendancy. And perhaps the average American does not think of America as an empire, uh, but indeed it is. It has the earmarkings of an empire, a world-ruling empire, if you will. And that fits in with the thought of the series on Babylon, how we are the leader of the world. Understand that America, even yet today, still has by far the most powerful military on the earth. And the whole earth is subdued under that. The whole earth fears that. They know that at any given moment in time we decide to, we can bomb them into oblivion. And it doesn't matter whether it's Russia or China or anybody else. Now, that has been the case heretofore. It's, it's becoming a little shaky now as our decline has set in. But five years ago, ten years ago, this was still very, very much a realistic assessment. Not only is our military capable of that, and we did use it on quite a few different people, did we not, and have we not, and are threatening to again. And God says we will, and then we will have our horn broken. We will be destroyed. But up till now, we have been, in that sense, militarily, a world-ruling empire. Do what America says or die. Now, from an economic standpoint, that has also been the case. Nobody could do trade on this earth without the American dollar. We have by far the, the biggest uh, e economic output on earth, the GDP and so on. The wealthiest nation by far on earth. And it's not just that we're wealthy and others perhaps are less wealthy but also have wealth. The American dollar has been the petrodollar or the reserve currency of the entire earth for several decades. And they could not buy or sell oil and therefore hardly anything else without settling all their debts with the American dollar. So if you have military control of the world, and you have economic control of the world, and we have, then you are a world-ruling empire. God said, I will set you on high above all nations of the earth. And this, too, is an end-time prophecy. So the United States has had this opportunity and has actually fulfilled this scripture. Now, we get to reading once in a while, and people will begin to wonder, well, maybe we're Israel instead of them, or this race is and that race is. But you have to go by fulfillment of prophecy. You can find some obscure things that you think, well, maybe this goes that way, or maybe this goes another way, or whatever. But where have these blessings come, both physical and spiritual? It has been 
of this country. Steve Collins did a pretty good job, I think, of showing F.C. or Isaac uh, with the Anglos and Saxons uh, being Israel. Where do you find the names of Israel in the phone books? It's a real simple thing to do. Go to Hong Kong, China, or Ying Yang Province, or whatever, and look in the phone book. How many names of Israel do you see there? Do the same thing in Afghanistan. Do it in Thailand. Do it anywhere except the nations that we recognize as Israelite. When you go to an Israelite country, you're going to find uh, Jacobs and Jacobson and Isaacson and, and all those names from the Bible there. Now, some other peoples have adopted some of those, and peoples who have come into this country have adopted some of those after they've been here a while, but that's where it originated. That's where the Bible influence is, and so on. So I have no doubt that the Semitic or Shemitic people, and even the world recognizes that the languages of Western Europe and the United States are Semitic or from Shem. Based on the most productive lands, based upon where God gave those blessings, and based upon where he began his church and is doing an end-time spiritual work in Israel, it has all happened in America. So that, among many, many other factors uh, about these prophecies that we've been studying, show that this land has to be that. And if it is the original promised land, as we are proposing, then all nations have to begin here. But I don't think there's any question that he has set this nation above all nations of the earth right here in the end time. That should give us a very strong clue. And all these blessings shall come on you and overtake you. You came into America and it was a land, what did we call it? Of opportunity. We don't have a Russian dream. We don't have a Cambodian dream. We don't have a Nigerian dream. We have the American dream that the whole world has had before its face, and people from all nations have wanted to come here, and indeed many have come here. So it's like we've just been overrun with blessings. It's not like you, you had to work so hard for something, it just overtook you. The blessings ran us down in this country. It just happened so fast and so much. Now, he's talking about the promised land here again. So these words have to fit somewhere. There's only one place on earth I can find that they do fit. Where else can you put it? You can't. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. We've built huge cities that have been extremely wealthy. We've got a few in the Rust Bucket area now, Detroit and Cleveland and so on, that are in their decline, but they were among the most wealthy cities on earth in their prime. So those blessings have been in the city, and they have been in the field. 
There is no nation blessed agriculturally as this nation has been blessed. Fields of waving grain. Millions and millions of people on the face of the earth depending on American agricultural productivity for their very existence today. And there are a lot of people who are going to starve to death in the next 12 months because the American corn and wheat and barley crops are in drought and are being lessened a great deal. I remember going up into Wisconsin some years ago and government warehouses stretched for miles, literally miles in rows, full of cheese, full of butter, full of things that were being sent to foreign countries to help feed them so they would not starve to death. We have been blessed in the field, as no other nation on earth has been blessed. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body and the fruit of your ground, the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your cattle, and the flocks of sheep. We are among the most productive nations in all of those things. And we have been pretty healthy as well until we started polluting everything and destroying ourselves. But a generation ago, people didn't have all these diseases we have today. They lived long, fruitful lives. Now they essentially embalm us with drugs to try to keep us alive longer, but uh, that's not the way it used to be. So we've had this blessing as well. Blessed shall be your basket and your store. Well, I've already touched on that with our tremendous uh, granaries full of silos full of grain, of milk, of honey. All these things we've exported. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. In your house, out of your house, in your country, out of your country. We had so much wealth. We could travel. We could go here. We could go there. We could do business all over the earth. Not every nation has been blessed with that. The eternal shall cause your enemies that rise up against you to be smitten before your face. There again, as I said yesterday, like Normandy and various other places where God seemed to intervene with weather or whatever to make sure that we won, in spite of ourselves sometimes. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. Our military has been that powerful. The Eternal shall command the blessings upon you in your storehouses and all that you set your hand to do. Seems like no matter what America did for the last two or three hundred years, it all turned into a blessing. It all worked. We had very few failures. If you didn't want to go to the moon, America would go first. And he shall bless you in the land which the Eternal your God gives you. Now, is this the land he gave us or not? Do these blessings fit right here or not? He's talking here in the context of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. Moses wrote this. He's talking about the original promised land and what it would be in the latter days. I look at the latter days and I don't see anything else that's even close. Not even close. 
for what we have had in this country. The Eternal shall establish you and holy people to himself, as he has sworn to you, if you shall keep the commandments of the Eternal your God and walk in his ways. And we did look upon ourselves and try to be a Christian nation, even though the people were taught wrong. Uh, the true eternal God is the one that they intended to worship, even though they wound up worshiping their father the devil because of not understanding the truth and not being called. But of any nation on earth, this one had the chance with the Bible, with all that God has given. We exported the Bible to the world even though we didn't follow it. And all people of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Eternal, and they shall be afraid of you. The Muslims to this day look upon us as a Christian nation, but they think Christianity is satanic, but they still fear us. Now that fear is quickly dissipating, but all peoples of the earth have feared us. And the Eternal shall make you plenteous, in goods, in the fruit of your body, the fruit of your cattle, the fruit of the ground, and the land which the eternal swore to your fathers to give you. Do we need to continue this series? Do we need to continue another verse? <laughs> you know, to me that's pretty self-apparent. Well, there's an awful lot more, but just some statements like this, and when you consider the fact, I'm not going by emotion. I'm not going by bias because I'm mostly perhaps Shemitic in blood. I'm going by the things that God said would be and looking around at the world and saying, where is that? The Eternal shall open to you his good treasure, the heaven to give the rain to the land in his season. We've had a good temperate climate. We have had a goodly amount of water through, throughout this land, except here in pretty much in the southwest, a few little desert areas up in eastern Washington and Oregon, but for the most part, uh, productive and rain everywhere. And even this land out here was not as bad as it is today. Right there where we live at King Beds, a hundred years ago, they say grass was right up to the cow's belly. Uh, that was a very productive area. And then because of greed, they overgrazed it, took all the grass out, and it was replaced with sagebrush and pinions and so on. So things have changed here because of us. Uh, let's go on a little bit more. And to bless all the work of your hand, he reiterates. Now notice this, and you shall lend unto many nations, and you shall not borrow. Would you rather be a lender or a borrower? Which, which is a better state to be in? It's nice to have enough to lend and not to be so bereft that you have to borrow. Now this nation has blessed the whole world. Our foreign aid program at one time, reached almost the whole world. And we still send a lot of aid to a lot of countries. We have been very, very generous with that. God put us in such an incredible position of wealth 
So we've been able to share it with essentially the whole world. What other nation has done that? None. There is none who is in a position to, nor even a people that probably would have even been willing had they been able to. But America has done it. You'll lend to many nations, and you shall not borrow. We didn't borrow for a long, long time. We were, I don't know when the exact turning point was, but even 20 years ago, perhaps, uh, I've read the statistics, they don't come to mind, we were the greatest predator nation on earth. We had more, and we extended credit to others beyond comprehension. Today, we're the greatest debtor nation. It changed very quickly. We owe more money to more nations and more people than any other nation on earth. Now, I've only read the blessings part of this. It says if you don't obey God, and then the, then the list gets long, all of the things that he will take away, and how we will have gone from the head to the tail, and how we will have gone from being the greatest creditor nation to the greatest borrower nation. Verse 43, I'll just read a little bit more. The stranger that is within you shall get up above you very high, and you shall come down very low. So this nation was started by essentially the Anglo-Saxon peoples and the peoples of the tribes of Israel. Then we began to import people as slaves. We began to invite people in from other countries just to come live here by the millions. And we have opened up the gates in the last few years and just let people pour in here of other races, uh, primarily Mexican and all of those mixture of people that come across the Mexican border, as well as the, the legal immigration. And those people now are getting to be above us. Uh, the middle class is under attack. It is being destroyed. And the people that used to just do your lawn are now beginning to get better and better jobs as white Anglo-Saxon Americans lose their jobs. They're getting high above us in government, in governmental positions, and in every way. And you shall come down very low. He shall lend to you, and you shall not lend to him. With trillions of dollars in debt now. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. From going, being the head will go to the tail. Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you, and shall pursue you, and overtake you, until you be destroyed. Because you hearken not to the voice of the eternal your God to keep his commandments and his statutes as he commanded you. And they shall be upon you for a sign and for a wonder, and upon your seed forever. Because you serve not the eternal your God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. America very quickly forgot where its blessings came from. And now... Probably a majority of people would not even call themselves Christian in this nation. And we're quickly becoming the tail, and we're about to be destroyed. So 
So if this cycle does not fit the United States of America today, I don't know what does. We've had all those blessings that we read, and now we're getting, I just read a little bit about the cursings. I don't want to go into all that at the moment because that is not the point of this series. The point is, who fits what God says? And I don't think anybody could sitting here could argue with what we just said. There's, there's just no other nation you could even begin to plug in there and say, hey, what about this one? You know, there's nothing even close. Now, <clears throat> some time ago I went through uh, the first books of the Bible in a study in terms of, of uh, the subject that we're addressing here in this series. And I want to <clears throat> go back and go through some of these scriptures that I highlighted because I think they will give us perhaps an expanded view of mankind and of history that will stand us in good stead would we get to some of the archaeological uh, and geological stuff uh, beyond what we've already covered uh, because there's a great deal that I, I want to go through and show you the facts on. Uh, you know, what are they? Uh, let's see them. But let's see, I think it's important to see what God said would be before we get down to some of those things. We've, we've covered some of them, certainly, and just did there in Deuteronomy 28. But there are things back here that will give you a different worldview if you understand what God says about it than what our history books and our lore and so on uh, have told us in the past. Now, generally in school, we were taught from first grade on up as we came to the various subjects in world history that mankind started in the land of Mesopotamia originally, in the, the Middle East, uh, Near East, and that it stayed pretty much there, and there was not intercontinental travel, there were not races spread all over the earth, and that America was not even discovered until nearly 6,000 years after man's creation, 1492 by Columbus. That's the story I remember getting in public school, and that's pretty much the story we still have that they didn't go back and forth, that these lands were not known. Uh, what's the truth? Well, what does God say about it? I want to, to go through, uh, let's see, I've already covered Genesis 2 a little bit about the river that came out the, and, and the gold and so on. Uh, let's go to, well, I'll skip on ahead just a little bit to 13.10 of Genesis. Here's where uh, Abraham and Lot parted, and we'll flash back before this, but just some of these that I wrote down, uh, because of partly because of the rivers that came out from Eden, uh, whether those continued uh, after the flood or were, were, or were destroyed in the flood, very possibly. Um, there was still a condition there, Genesis 13.10, 
And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Eternal destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Eternal, like the land of Egypt that you come unto Zoar. Now, I don't know where the land of Mystrium particularly was that he was speaking of here, of Egypt, or where Zoar was. I think we'll know someday. <laughs> but the plain of Jordan was well watered. How does that fit what they call the Jordan today? It has a little creek running down through it. Uh, it's way below sea level, and it's so very, very hot, it's almost impossible to grow anything down in there, even if you have water. And I don't know that I would call it a plain. It's a, uh, a fast-falling creek, well, until it gets down two or 300 feet below sea level. Then it becomes a very meandering stream. And there's really not a plain or a wide, broad valley there that could have been well-watered in a large, productive area. So it makes me wonder if that's the Jordan this is talking about when he went eastward. Now, things have changed, there's no doubt, uh, and we'll see that a little bit. Uh, on the earth since then, but as far as the archaeologists are concerned, we read yesterday in the Bible Atlas that they have seen no major climactic change in the Middle East, as far back as they can find any records or any evidence like the Roman uh, gutters and so on, or, or irrigation canals. So, just an interesting thought in there. I don't know that it necessarily truly proves anything, but uh, the fact that the Jordan area in the days that we're reading about here of uh, Abraham and Lot was like the Garden of Eden still. And we know from Genesis 3.24 that the cherubim stood at the east of the gate to protect the tree of life. So eastward out of Eden, uh, there was some Wonderful area, wherever that was. I touched on this yesterday. This, these are just some random points as we go through here. Uh, Genesis 4, verse 22. Remember I said they had iron before the flood? Here's uh, a verse that shows that. In Zillah, she also bare Tubal came, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. Way back then, well, this is after the flood right here, I guess, just a little bit after. But it certainly isn't what they call the Iron Age. This is right afterward. Uh, and they were working iron way back then. Well, you know, they'll, they'll tell us that the Iron Age was much, much later than this. Well, no, it wasn't. It went all the way back. God says so. Uh, 7, 19, and 20 is a very interesting thing. We'll, we'll begin to introduce some thoughts about the way the world was before the flood and what happened. Uh, Genesis 7 and verse 19, And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, because of Noah's flood, or God's flood in the day of Noah. And all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. 
Fifteen cubits upward did the water prevail, and the mountains were covered. Now, does that mean that there were hills and mountains, and that it went up fifteen cubits above the hills and mountains? Or that prior to the flood, there were no hills and mountains so high that you couldn't raise the water fifteen cubits and cover the top of them all? First the hills, and then another fifteen cubits, and the mountains themselves were covered. Perhaps that's an indication that prior to the flood, uh, we didn't have mountains like we see to the south and east of us here. But they may not have been very high, and the waters wouldn't have had to have been that deep for Noah's flood. Uh, is this a little indication? I, I don't know that for sure, but uh, it might be. Uh, it might be. Now, we learn as we go on here, my eye probably will fall on it, that, uh, that the earth was divided in the days of Peleg. And I think there is some indication that the earth was all one continent. God raised it out of the ground or out of the waters at the creation and, uh, they were not divided. So every part of the earth was habitable without even having to have a ship before, uh, but then it was divided. I think that is different than when uh, it was divided in the days of the uh, Tower of Babel. It, it seems to be a different time and perhaps a different thing. Look at the continents. They say there's been continental drift. The scientists say that. And if you look at the coastlines of Africa and South America and so on, they do roughly fit together. But I've seen information about the continental shelves that are underwater, not under great deep water, but underwater, and they fit even better than the present coastlines do. So it appears that they were separated. And perhaps that's when we got all these mountains that were wrinkled up to a much higher elevation than may have been there before the flood, because the the division came not too long after the flood itself. And uh, the flood dramatically. Now, let's go to Genesis 9 and hear verse 19. Talks about them coming off the ark. Uh, the sons of Noah, verse 18, that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. Let that sink in. They went to the ends of the earth. The whole earth was overspread by these, by the sons of these three men. That was a long ways before 1492. Now, they'll also tell you that, well, the only way people could get to North America was they came across the Bering Straits, walked on ice on, in an ice age, and then came further south. But we'll see DNA proof and various other things that show that uh, that was not the case. But God just makes a simple statement here. That these three 
populated the whole earth. And Noah began to be an husbandman, decided he'd be a farmer, planted a vineyard, and got drunk, and uh, was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the naked of his, nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And the faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. That would be to uh, the other brothers, uh, Shem and Japheth. This has been debated back and forth as to what happened here. Uh, was it such a great sin to, for sons to see their father undressed? Or was something else involved here? Uh, nakedness can mean uh, a sexual thing as well. Uh, could, have, could have Noah's wife or wives been defiled here by a grandson? or uh, possibly a homosexual act, because it wasn't just having seen him. I don't know that he would wake up and, under and see what his son had done if he'd peeked in and seen him laying there naked. But it says what his younger son had done to him. So there was something that was obvious that had been done, and he saw the evidence of that. Now, he, he cursed Canaan, who was of Ham, and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and did for some time, and Canaan shall be his servant. So Canaan was told that he would be a servant of the others as a result of this sin. Now, let's understand that this was only one part of the children of Ham, only Canaan. If you go on down, the sons of Ham, chapter 10, verse 6, were Cush, Mitzrium, and Phut, and Canaan. So four different sons from which came four different uh, races of Ham. But the Canaanites are the ones singled out of the children of Ham that would have the servitude uh, going forward. Now, nobody wants to be uh, <laughs> a child of Canaan today, but we simply have to look at the record. Now, Israel later on went into captivity to Ham, and they made very clear in the Psalms in two or three places that they were in captivity in the land of Ham, but it is also very clear from myriad places that it's called Egypt that is Trans, should be translated Mitzrium. So Israel was in captivity to Mitzrium, not to Canaan. I think that's an important distinction to make, uh, because God said that Canaan would be the servant, not Mitzrium, not Put, or not Cush, but Canaan only. Now when we fast forward to the time Abraham came looking for a city and a land, who was there? The sons of Canaan. Not Mitzrayim, not Phut, but Canaan specifically. 
And uh, they're mentioned here. Uh, let's see, Canaan begat in verse 15. Uh, wait a minute, let's go back. Uh, Canaan begat Sidon, his firstborn in Heth, and the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Gergesite, the Hivite, the Archite, the Sihite, Arvidite, the Zimmerite, and the Hamathite. Uh, Philistines came from Mitzrium, and there were Philistines in the land as well, as the Bible record shows, but it was primarily these sons of Canaan. There's some mixing back and forth in, in all these things with Israel and with all the Gentile peoples and so on. But primarily it was the Canaanite who was in the land, and they called it the land of Canaan. Now they had taken that land uh, after the flood, but God had originally intended it to go to Abraham and his descendants. So what happened? They went into the land with Joshua and took it, and God subdued those nations before them, those Canaanite tribes, and they became servants to Israel, just as this prophecy had said, primarily the Canaanites. Now, that may even extend on down. Uh, Israel was in captivity to the Mitzriamites for 430 years. Uh, and God said, if you disobey again, I will take you into Mitzriam by ship. And I do think that... Uh, at one point, Israel was taken out of this country and went over to uh, the Middle Eastern area in northern Africa and were indeed slaves there and later migrated through and up into Europe before being allowed to come back over here after a very long captivity in which this land would lay essentially desolate and not be farmed and tilled and have its Sabbaths, as we read in the chapter about Jubilee. There were peoples here. They were mixed people uh, of, of Israelite and Gentile blood. It's what they were, the brown race. Now notice it says, in, at the end of verse 18, after naming these children of Canaan, that the Canaanites spread abroad. From wherever we're talking about here, that Shem, Ham, and Japheth came out of the ark and began to produce people, that from there the Canaanites spread abroad, as did the other tribes of Japheth and of, of Ham, and ultimately then of, uh, of Shem as well. And then it gives different borders uh, of the sons of Canaan. Now, it, it lists those borders not in relationship to uh, any of the Japhetic offspring. It doesn't list them in terms of Shem, but in terms of Canaan. Because it would have impact later on when Abraham was to go there. God wanted to define where that area was. And Canaan would be there when Abraham arrived. Now let's go down. It talks about the children of Shem in verse 21. Uh, and in the line of Shem was Eber, and he had a son named Peleg, verse 25. For in his days was the earth divided. 
I, I went through that. Let's see. Peleg means division in Hebrew. Uh, but if you go down in the years, uh, from, from Shem on down to Eber, uh, and to Abraham, or to Abram, uh, Abraham was born approximately 297 years after the flood, you know, and so and so beget so and so through the generations. It comes back about that amount of time. And Shem was still alive when Abraham was walking the earth. Died some time after. But here we've already seen that people were spread abroad over the face of the earth, particularly the people of Canaan. Now, let's go on to chapter 11. The whole earth was of one language and of one speech. So whatever language that Noah was speaking and his sons and daughters-in-law were speaking and their children and their children and their children, they all had one language. There hadn't been any necessity to have different languages. They were all one people. And it came to pass, they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain, in, or it should say toward the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they decided to make a city and a tower and cause it to reach to heaven and make a powerful name for ourselves lest we be scattered upon the face of the whole earth. So they wanted a central government. They wanted, in a word, or three words, a new world order. They wanted a one, wor one world, one government, ruling everyone, and not scattered abroad. That was a fear that they had. And God came down and saw that, and he said, well, they, they're all one, they're all unified, in spite of different races, they have one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be strained from them what they have imagined to do. I think we're reaching this again here at the end of the age, where scientific development and sophistication has occurred to the point that we're getting where we can travel in space, and whatever man does, God has provided the laws of the universe which have to be followed. But if you do follow them, there's a lot of things you can do. And we're showing that right now. And he knew that it was going to reach that level. What level it had reached, we don't know. But he says, Come, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Eternal scattered them abroad from there, upon the face of all the earth. And they left off to build the city. He confounded the language of all the earth, and from there did the Eternal scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. So he repeats it twice. <clears throat> from the Tower of Babel, people were scattered over all the earth. Uh, now, it had been divided perhaps in the days of Peleg, but this, this is a scattering of peoples here. But I would assume then that the scattering or the division of the continents occurred in the days of Peleg. Now, what does that mean? I think that it means that God created great earthquakes or whatever and caused the continents to drift apart so that he could separate the peoples. The Tower of Babel occurred and then he sent people all over the earth. Now, if 
a huge section drifted away, people would have been familiar with that section of the earth. And maybe they would have gone to find it if they liked it. And I think that that's what happened. God caused them to go all over. Now, they knew about sailing. Hadn't they just come off a pretty good-sized boat? Uh, they could do whatever was necessary to go from continent to continent. I'm sure the ark was still around for them to even see at that point. Uh, unless God had already covered it with snow and ice or something if it was in the mountains of Ararat. And I think that the uh, thought that Ruth proposed is probably still correct. I've mentioned it before, but I think it's a good one to bring up here. She felt that the ark was indeed in this land that we now know as America and more than likely had been built within a few miles of where we're sitting today. Uh, and when the floods came, the mountains were lower, the floods didn't have to be that deep, uh, and covered the face of the whole earth. And then the ark floated because the water covered the whole earth and wound up in the mountains over in the Near East, Western Europe, Eastern Asia. I mean, uh, Western Asia, Eastern Europe. The lands of Ararat, which are in Turkey. Now, they have shown, uh, and there have been rumors, and there have been investigations over the years, and it's a pretty good indication that there is something up there that looks like a big boat. But because of politics and weather, it has been very, very difficult for them to ascertain that, though some claim they have pieces of it. So I don't know for sure the answer on that. But there is no doubt that there was a huge civilization that began, as it says here, in the plain of Shinar. So I think this was the original land, and that the ark did drift that far, and when it lighted on <clears throat> what would not have been real tall mountains at that time in Ararat, they came down and went east to the land of Shinar, Mesopotamia, as we know it today. And there began Babel and Babylon. They called it confusion. And from there sprang the modern civilizations that we have today. In other words, there was a cradle of civilization here, where mankind was created. And it was misused, abused, polluted, sinned upon, and God sent the second iteration of man's history over to uh, the land of Shinar and Mesopotamia, Iran, Persia, those areas that we know today over there. And there it began again. They began their one, one girl, one girl, their one world government, uh, and God scattered them all over the face of the earth. And perhaps just prior to that, had divided the continents to further separate and confuse. But we see here in the record that the sons of Ham in particular, uh, were spread abroad. Uh, no, the sons of Canaan, I mean. But then it says all the peoples at the Tower of Babel, were scattered and went over the whole earth. So the all continents then were repopulated. And I, I propose that during the days of Peleg is when the high mountains came to be. 
Uh, we have right up through here the Great Basin that's full of seashells and fossils and so on that very clearly show it was all underwater at one time. And that could mean that sailing vessels could have come in and out of here uh, with ease, no problem at all. But then when the continents were divided, if you look at a, a globe or a world map and see where the mountains are, the western coast of all of South America, Central America, North America, clear around to Alaska, have tremendous wrinkles. It's like you were pushing something, and the far edge wrinkled as you pushed. So it created high mountains here on the west coast of North and South America. There are far lesser altitude mountains on the east coast, so if you were, if you were pushing it west, the wrinkling would occur mostly on the, the edge, and you might have some wrinkle in the sheet or whatever you're pushing on the east, but not nearly uh, so high or not so dramatic. So the promised land would have at that point changed uh, from what it had originally been in the Garden of Eden. And some of those rivers and lakes and various things that might have been in the first thousand years of man's experience may have been altered quite a bit. But the land that Abraham came to, and the Canaanites had preceded him to, had already been wrinkled. Now, whether or not it may have changed somewhat in elevation up and down uh, over the years, we don't know. And we don't know how much settling and volcanic activity and so on may have been set off by the dividing of the continents, and how long a lot of that may have lasted. But even right here, if this be the area we're talking about, there's a great deal of volcanic activity in southern Utah, and as I said, right here around us, and three of the greatly identifying features of this hill that we are considering are volcanic. Now, we'll get to it a little later, but I might interject the thought here, since it's on the table, that these three cinder cones back here, the two on up the valley a ways, and the one here just above us on the other side of this very hill, uh, are in a certain pattern, the way they lay, if you look at them on Google Earth. And if you look at the pyramids in Mexico, the ones in Giza, Egypt, they are the exact same configuration. You can take pictures from Google Earth and overlay them, and we've done it, uh, of those three sets of pyramids, these, these three natural ones and those man-made ones, and they fit almost like a hand in a glove. Now, which is the copy? These cinder hills for the ones that were built by man somewhere else. I have an article we'll get to that shows there's another set just like them in China. There's another set in Italy. They have just discovered, I think in 2005, another set of three pyramids in Bosnia. And I wrote for the book, downloaded it on Kindle, that he wrote about the pyramids of the world. And even though the ones in Bosnia do not fit the same exact pattern in the way that they're laid out, and the distance apart, everything, is these, uh, they're an equilateral triangle, all points the same uh, distance. 
But within the artifacts of those, he found a stone that had been carved out, and it had inlays of two red pyramids. And inlaid in that brownish stone. Look around here. This earth I picked up right here by my chair is about the same color as the stone that they made the holes in to inlay the red pyramids. I've got a... Well, I couldn't... I couldn't uh, copy it off of Kindle because it's, you're not allowed to copy off of Kindle books, but I, I kind of traced it and sort of colored it with the color that it was with the best things I had at hand to show you later. But it has the two pyramids inlaid in the, the rock, and then it has a third one that's round and has an eye in it, just like these. I wrote him an email, and cause he he mentioned that Giza and Tehuantecan, uh, Khan, however you say it there in, in Mexico, those he said that those are configured exactly the same, and even the bases of the pyramid in Mexico and in Egypt are the same size. Uh, he was making a point, which I think is a very valid one that fits in with what we're studying right here, is that these pyramids were built with technology, perhaps with equipment, and knowledge that we do not, to this day, possess. They have no idea, no clue, how those pyramids were all built. The size of the stones, the way they're cut, how closely they fit together, we do not have the technology to do to this very day. Now, in the movies about Moses, <laughs> you saw the Israelites by the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, pulling these rocks up the dirt bank that they built so that they could pull them up there. Well, the problem with that scene is that some of those rocks are of such a size that there was no place for anybody to even be to set them in place that would hold more than ten people. The scientists are absolutely befuddled. They have no idea how these things were done. We'll get into more of that about pyramid building and so on later on and the electromagnetic uh, possibilities that are there as well as uh, calendar possibilities and a, I think, prestigious number of them are patterned after these three cones. And as you've seen, as you went up here, they're red. Where they dug into them, they're primarily red. They, they've taken some out for roads and landscaping and so on, which is kind of handy in a way because it shows us that they're not just this color of hill all through, but they got red cinders. There's some black cinders, but it's mostly red cinders in all three of them. Uh, so why do they copy these all over the world, and even copy the colors. Even the ones in Egypt have the colors copied after right here. Now, does that tell us something or not? Now, one point he makes is that it blows history completely apart the way mankind has printed it for us. How so? In that, 
the people who designed all of these pyramids to be in the same configuration, to be in the same size in many cases, to be the same colors, all had to have had communication with each other. It is impossible that all of these design so much akin to each other could have been designed and built without knowledge going back and forth about how to do it. No people could put together something like that independently and come up with the same thing. The mathematical odds of that are stupendous. So he says, pyramids alone prove that there was intercontinental travel and intercontinental communication that was very sophisticated at the time of the building of the pyramids. And they date them anywhere, some of them from 2,000 years ago to 10,000 years ago, essentially, which would be within the confines of mankind. Were these built during... Uh, a thousand years after, before the flood, or some of them built afterward. But it is quite interesting that the pattern that these three hills we're talking about right here. Now, I've often said, once we began to understand some of these things, it's easier to prove that that's not the place than that, that, that this is the place. But things like this that are coming up offer some pretty incontrovertible evidence. God did not decide, I'll put three temples on the earth over here uh, that'll copy the ones over in Egypt or Mexico or China or Italy or Bosnia. I don't think he did it that way. I think he created these three temples on the face of the earth, and mankind who had been centered here, whose whole civilization and existence began here, went to other places on the earth, and remembered and copied their land of origin. And they had communication with each other when that occurred. I think it'll be a very interesting study to try to figure out when that time of pyramid building was. Even before the flood, I think they had very advanced technological capacities. And they were much smarter then than we are now. They had not eaten junk for generations, and pigs and, you know, crabs and whatever. They were very smart back then, unless you buy into evolution. I think mankind has been degenerating ever since Adam and Eve, not evolving into a higher form. Um, we've degenerated a lot in the last hundred years, just for instance. So... When did this occur? They did have a, no a knowledge before the flood of exactly where the Garden of Eden had been. The earth had not been changed materially, and those cherubim may have been there east of Eden guarding that garden until the flood came and altered it, changed it, moved it, destroyed it. And then the continental uh, movement changed it even more. Now, were some of these, was this essentially preserved? And a knowledge of these, that were these here in this way 
prior to the flood, or did these volcanoes erupt when the continents were moved and there was great pressures created? I don't know. Uh, I would think, logically speaking, that perhaps a lot of this volcanic activity occurred at the time and thereafter of when the continents were divided, because that would have put a tremendous pressures on the Earth's crust. So it may be that uh, there was some change in configuration here from the, the time of Adam and Eve, when there may have been low hills and mountains, to the time of uh, Shemham and Japheth and Peleg and then the Tower of Babel, when there was an awful lot of volcanic activity and ice ages moving back and forth and so on that's uh, kind of hard to figure out exactly what was what. But these were here, and somebody looked upon them as very, very important. So important that they would build those amazing architectural and construction pyramids uh, in such a way that they would copy what is right here. So we don't know all the answers to that yet, but the evidence seems to be here that, uh, that these things occurred. I think I may be asphyxiated here. Tent lapsed over my head. Time's it getting to be. Well, we've about used up our time. Uh, well, maybe that's pretty much a good place to uh, to stop for today, to, to consider that. And I think it's good we do it here before the feast ends. There's a lot of things I want to cover later in more details about some of these things. But right here today, if some of you haven't seen these three volcanoes, I think you ought to go up and take a look at them. And if you want to get on Google Earth and go to Egypt and to Bosnia and to Italy and to China and uh, to Egypt Mexico, uh, you'll find these three laid out. It's an amazing thing to do. Uh, so, let's do stop in for today.